In other words, the end goal of a religious education is not for personal edification. It is for the ability, the opportunity, and the capacity to serve and lift other people. Welcome back to the Humble Jurist Podcast. Today, we are listening to Elder Clark G. Gilbert, General Authority 70 of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He spoke at the Religious Freedom Annual Review hosted by the International Center for Law and Religious Studies at Brigham Young University. His address is titled, The Stewardship of Our First Freedom, and was delivered on June 15, 2023. Take a listen. I'm going to open with uh, a quote from Elder Quentin L. Cook. Um, when Elder Cook um, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints spoke at Oxford University's Pembroke College about the importance of religious freedom for public morality, he was essentially charging people of faith to be stewards of their religious freedom. The quote on the slide here says, there is no better demonstration of the great benefits associated with religious liberty than for devoted members of various faiths who feel accountable to God to model principles of integrity, morality, service, and love. In this sense, our religious freedom is not only a stewardship to society, but a stewardship to God. Today's religious freedoms have instructive historical underpinnings. When the Constitution was presented, many people feared its creation would establish a federal authority so powerful that it would threaten not only states' rights, but our God-given individual rights. Emblematic of those concerns was the fear of an established state religion. It's with some irony that James Madison the founding architect of religious protections in Virginia, suddenly found himself being the principal person arguing against the need for a companion bill of rights to go with the Constitution. Constitutional scholar and friend of many of us here, Noah Feldman, points out in his book, Divided by God, that Madison felt religious diversity alone would be sufficient to guarantee religious freedom. Madison argued, quote, for where there is such a variety of sects, there cannot be a majority of any one sect to oppress and persecute the rest. Well, Madison's Baptist and Presbyterian constituents, who had worked with him so closely on the disestablishment of the Anglican Church in Virginia, did not agree with his argument now about the Constitution and no need for a Bill of Rights. They demanded that the Constitution should be paired with a formal statement of rights uh, expressed eventually in the Bill of Rights. And despite his federal allegiance, Federalist allegiances, Madison began to work on a compromise that led to the creation of the Bill of Rights. And he eventually became the principal architect of the First Amendment. Let us turn to the language in the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion 
or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of people to peaceably assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. There are two common misperceptions about the First Amendment, specifically as it relates to religion. First is the argument that the Establishment Clause, the first clause in the First Amendment, was designed somehow to protect Americans from religion, rather than simply prevent the government from establishing a state religion. In reality, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause are best understood as complementary attempts to protect religious conscience and to shield religious practice. There is considerable historical evidence that the purpose of the disestablishment efforts, of which I referred to in Virginia, were in fact designed to preserve religious conscience. President Dallin H. Oaks of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints echoes this belief. Quote, the prohibition against an establishment of religion was intended to separate churches and government, to forbid a national church. For almost a century, this guarantee of religious freedom had been understood as a limitation on state as well as federal power over religious practice. In other words, the Establishment Clause was meant to protect religious exercise from governmental encroachment. Further evidence of this can be seen in the companion Free Exercise Clause. Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. By pairing these rights together, the framers simultaneously protected conscience from, the dom from a dominant state religion, while also protecting religious exercise for all religions. These paired rights, or complementary components of the same right, ensured diverse religious participation. Professor Michael McConnell, the director of the Stanford Constitutional uh, Law Center, stated the following, religion would flourish better if it were left free. Justice-free enterprise is good for the economy. Free exercise is good for religion. The second misinterpretation that's common around the First Amendment as it relates to religion is that the religion clauses themselves can be decoupled or disassociated with other first freedoms. A visual representation of this might be seen in the Newhouse School of Journalism, where the opening for the First Amendment is graphically and perhaps symbolically truncated to elevate freedom of speech and freedom of the press over other parts of the First Amendment. Neil A. Maxwell, former apostle of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, stated, the First Amendment is a major branch of the tree from which one ought not to try to prune. Prune away any of the limbs of liberty, those who are not concerned with religious freedom, but solely with freedom of speech, will find that pruning of religious freedom will adversely affect freedom of speech. For a number of years, I worked with news organizations around the world. We used to host the Latin American News Association here in Salt Lake. 
They would come to study how to innovate the model of a news organization. And one of our colleagues and friends would say to them, we are with you, we agree in the freedom of the press, but you ignore the freedom of religion at your peril because the freedom of the press and the freedom of speech always rise and fall with the freedom of religion. This has been a long preamble on the First Amendment. The heritage of our first freedoms is inspiring. I love the visual of those early defenders of those freedoms in the picture of a Minuteman, called up to leave their plows at a moment's notice. When the Constitutional Army lacked soldiers and resources, Thomas Paine penned his classic plea, these are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in the crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands now deserves the love and thanks of men and women. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. We also have modern day defenders who answer the call for religious freedom, many of whom are in this room tonight. I recently attended the Beckett Canterbury Medal Gala in New York City. At the event, we reflected on the religious freedom victories in the Supreme Court, including cases vindicating religious freedom on behalf of religious universities and religious education. I'll walk through just four of those here. First is all the way back to 2012, the Hosanna Tabor versus the Equal Opportunity Commission. This was described in the Wall Street Journal as the most important religious liberty case in half a century. The Supreme Court in this case affirmed that ministerial exceptions for religions allowed them to choose their own teachers of their own faith without government interference. This was a breakthrough case that would eventually have implications for universities, for example, in selecting their faculty without government interference. In the Trinity Lutheran Church versus Comer, more recently in 2017, the Supreme Court ruled that governments cannot discriminate against churches that would otherwise qualify for funding just because they are religious. So if you choose to expand state funds to private universities but exclude religious schools because of their religious affiliation, that is a violation of the Constitution. And that, that case uh, won in the Supreme Court in 2017. In Our Lady of Guadalupe versus Morrissey Beru, the Supreme Court once again built on its previous victory with Hosanna Tabor uh, to affirm that governments cannot dictate whom religious schools employ to teach their own faith in a religious school setting. And then just more recently in Carson versus Macon, the Supreme Court ruled that governments cannot exclude religious schools from public tuition assistance programs simply because they are religion, religious. This case affected high schools, but you can see the clear implications for Pell Grants, and of course, in California, the recurring proposal to pull Cal Grants from religious schools 
because of their religious mission. The strong majorities in most of these cases demonstrates that religious conscience is not generally a partisan issue. Recent victories are a testament of the devoted work of modern champions of religious liberty whose efforts extend the work of our early founders. Now the question for tonight is how will we use those hard-fought victories for religious freedom? Religious freedom, despite what some of our legal colleagues like to think, is not an end unto itself. Our first freedoms come as a stewardship for which we are accountable both to society and to God. Unfortunately, increased opportunity can ironically often lead to decreased accountability. I will refer to this tonight as Thoreau's paradox. A communication technology began, as communication technology began to expand in the mid-1800s, the telegraph created unprecedented access to send messages quickly and efficiently across previously inaccessible distances. Henry David Thoreau noted this phenomenon with the observation, we are in great haste to construct magnetic telegraphs, uh, a magnetic telegraph from Maine to Texas, but Maine and Texas, it may maybe, have nothing important to communicate. I don't know what Thoreau would say about social media, but I think it would echo this statement. Today we face the equivalent of a religious freedom telegraph. Like, trans, like the transcontinental telegraph, there is an entire infrastructure for religious freedom that requires construction, maintenance, and even the defense of the infrastructure to function properly. But the stewardship of our first freedom causes us to ask the question, how are we using these opportunities? As organizations like Beckett, the Wheatley Institute, the International Center for Law and Religious Studies, and others continue to strengthen and protect our religious rights, we have a companion duty to use those rights in a way that will amplify faith as a source of meaning, hope, and service to others. This next section, uh, I will just tell you as the son of two attorneys, is entitled Beyond the Legal Scholars. <laughs> I felt this recent stewardship of religious freedom at the, at the uh, New York Beckett event. Uh, the Canterbury Medal Gala uh, was uh, presented that evening. We were there with Shane and Wendy Reese, who are pictured here. Evidently, when you're the president of the university, you wear a bow tie. When you're a general authority, you can only afford a black straight tie. <laughs> but at that black tie event, uh, we uh, had the opportunity uh, to celebrate the progress of the Religious Freedom Telegraph. We looked at continued Supreme Court victories, the creation of religious civic freedom clinics, insightful scholarship that's happening around the country in defense of religious freedom. So what is the result and responsibility of a university president and a commissioner of education? Why would they even ask me to speak tonight? 
I said to someone earlier, well, I don't know a lot about religious freedom, but I stayed in a Holiday Inn last night. <laughs> and we will never, Shane Reese and I will never stand in front of a court to defend religious freedom. We will never write up the analysis of a legal brief uh, to defend or argue uh, the, the legal uh, cause of religious freedom. So how do we engage in the effort that so many religious freedom scholars and defenders are championing? The answer is we become committed stewards of that first freedom ourselves. C.S. Lewis addressed the difference between fighting for freedom and using it for good in his lecture, Learning in Wartime. It was on the eve of World War II, Hitler had invaded Poland. The whole country of England was off to war. And in that setting, in front of a packed congregation at the Church of St. Mary of the Virgin at Oxford University, Lewis asked, and I paraphrase, if we are about to enter a global conflict, why shouldn't every investment in this looming battle be toward the war effort? Is it not selfish or even unpatriotic to send our youth off to school? For our purposes this evening, I ask, we might ask, why study any other discipline? Why should we all, shouldn't we all become legal scholars to help preserve religious freedom? Lewis turns the argument to a higher form of inquiry. Quote, how is it right or even psychologically possible for creatures who are every moment advancing either to heaven or to hell to spend any fraction of the little time allowed to them in this world on such seeming trivialities as literature or art or mathematics or biology. His answer is tied to a spiritual stewardship. Our efforts, again, quoting Lewis, become spiritual on precisely the same condition, that of being offered to God of being done humbly as to the Lord. Lewis's words suggest that we honor our stewardship for first freedoms by offering our separate and distinct gifts to heaven. On the evening of the Beckett Gala, Professor Michael McConnell was recognized as this year's Canterbury Medalist, the organization's highest honor for defenders of religious liberty. As I looked over past, oh, I'm going to pull this up. There's Michael right here. And I know we have Hannah Smith here, from, formerly from Beckett. And, uh, and that night, we honored Michael. Um, and I looked over the list of past recipients. And as I reviewed down that list, I saw many people who I've admired so, for so long. Um, I looked at people like Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs who spoke at Wheatley just before his passing in an interview with Paul Edwards uh, over Zoom during the pandemic. And of course, President Dallin H. Oaks, former BYU president and first counselor in the first presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I will draw briefly on insights from each of these Canterbury medalists as I explore the stewardship of our first freedom. 
It was during Professor, McConnell, er, Professor McConnell's Beckett Address that the idea of stewardship first hit me. McConnell cited Frederick Nietzsche's tale of the madman who runs through the marketplace declaring, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. In his novel, Thus Spake Zarathustra, Nietzsche has his mythic hero carry that same message throughout the world until he discovers a believing hermit who's isolated himself in the woods. Nietzsche Zarathustra marvels, quote, could it be possible this old saint in the forest had not heard yet that God is dead? But Zarathustra has pity on this holy man, whose sincere beliefs has him, quote, mumbling his praise for God alone in the forest. Rather than declare that God is dead, as he had so often before, Zarathustra leaves the humble hermit alone, fearing his refrain would take away something naive, but even precious in this man's sincere belief. McConnell observed in his remarks, quote, and in like manner, the postmodern world is willing to leave the believer in peace at least while he remains in the forest. Religious belief, even the secular world realizes, is precious to those who have it, and it would be pointless and mean to interfere with it. There are at least two conclusions I draw from Professor McConnell's remarks and his analysis of our postmodern critics. If we are to hope for more than just pity of an increasingly secular world, we must first find opportunities to step away from the isolation of the forest of faith. And second, we must do more than mumble our arguments for belief. Let me speak first on the isolation in the forest of faith. It is true that secular pressures are affecting religious communities. You are aware, no doubt, of the recent Pew data that shows that uh, nearly 30% of Americans now do not identify with any religion. These are what are often referred to as the, uh, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, um, in their disaffiliation with any formal religion. A Gallup study similarly showed that formal church membership is, has also dropped below 50% for the first time ever in the history of the United States. Beyond the, the decline in religious affiliation and practice, many face, including Christian face, one of the best kept secrets is how much Christian face feel persecution today in our modern society. Re Pew research shows that 70% of conservative evangelical Christians experience some or a lot of religious discrimination. These scores are on par with historical minorities who we have seen for years face these levels of persecution. Blacks, Muslims, Jews, LGBTQ community, but now you add to that conservative Christians who feel the same level of persecution for their beliefs. 
We may have won the legal protections, but cultural pressures continue to mount. As Paul Edwards and Justin Collins recently summarized in a Wheatley Horizon report on the Constitution, quote, although there have always been sharp critiques of various aspects of our Constitution, today's challenges to the fundamental legitimacy of constitutional norms from many quarters feel more existential. One risk is that the major recent jurisprudential gains in religious liberty could be overwhelmed in the court of public opinion if the Supreme Court and its re rulings are, continue to be delegitimized. Such pressures may leave many feeling they want to self-isolate, like Nietzsche's religious hermit. Conservative commenter Rod Dreher's antidote to this is what he calls the Benedict Option. In the language of the book cover, Dreher cites how St. Benedict of Nursia, horrified by the moral chaos following Rome, retreated to the forest and created a new way of life for Christians. His spiritual centers of hope were strongholds of light and life for Christians. His, um, in, a, in, a, in the dark ages, and saved not just Christianity, but Western civilization. Certainly there is a need to preserve religious identity and community in an increasingly secular world. Our friend Ibu Patel of Interfaith America has said, there is no diversity without particularity. I'm going to repeat that again because I really believe Ibu has hit something very profound as we look at pluralism in America. There is no diversity without particularity. In other words, diversity cannot mean everyone is the same. And certainly religious communities, including religious schools like BYU, where we gather today, are critical in preserving religious particularity required for a truly pluralistic America. But particularity need not require persistent isolation. Most religious universities, universities gather in their students for a season before sending them out to be a light and source of leaven to the world. BYU's own motto, enter to learn, go forth to serve, represents this. I also point to a statement by President Russell M. Nelson of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, when he said obtaining an education and getting knowledge are a religious responsibility. We educate our minds so that one day we can render service of worth to someone else. In other words, the end goal of a religious education is not for personal edification. It is for the ability the opportunity and the capacity to serve and lift other people. By preserving religious particularity, we not only preserve the religious identity, um, but also we preserve a unique wellspring of motivation that can lift and build others across society. In a special issue of the Deseret News last year entitled Dare to be Different, we worked across face to emphasize the importance of 
the distinctive character that religious universities carry. President Peter Kilpatrick uh, uh, noted uh, as president of Catholic University that, quote, we are serious about who we are at Catholic University. President Linda Livingstone, president of Baylor University said, we are unapologetically Christian. And our friend Rabbi Ari Berman of Yeshiva University outlined the difference that religious universities can have in the re very relationship they have with their students. When he's described the covenantal relationship students have at Yeshiva versus the consumer relationship most universities have with their students. Of course, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, two years ago, stated it uh, here on this campus that BYU itself will only realize its true destiny as it embraces its uniqueness and singularity as a religious university based in Jesus Christ. Leaving the safety of our religious enclaves will require more than just mumbling about our faith. We have an obligation to study the arguments for religious freedom and articulate religion's deeper contributions to society. I applaud ICLRS and Wheatley Institute and Blythe Shoup, who worked so uh, diligently on the Religious Freedom Library. Uh, you saw that video on the entrance today. Most of the quotes from uh, leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that I've referenced tonight are in that library. Um, studying these and other resources can, can help us sharpen our thinking and clarify our message. We also have a duty to tell the broader story of face impact. Ted Mitchell, former president of Occidental College and now president of the American Council on Education, former undersecretary of education in the Obama administration, recently stated, quote, religious universities represent a significant part of American higher education, and we need to figure out ways to take their work and the work they do to make it as important in the national dialogue as their impact suggests. But contrast this with a recent conversation I had with the editor of a prominent national publication who said to me recently, Clark, I'd like to do more on religion in higher education. But frankly, the only stories going on in religious higher ed are white nationalism, LGBTQ issues, and uh, evolutionary theory. While I might be tempted to criticize such a narrow perspective, I wonder how much responsibility we share as religious institutions for allowing such a narrative to persist. Is it the media's obligation to come find us in the forest and decipher our mumbling? Or is it people of faith who must learn to tell our own story in compelling ways with clarity and conviction? The Apostle Peter charged Christians to be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you for a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. The editorial team I mentioned eventually invited us to share 
what we are doing in the church educational system of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That conversation wasn't always easy, and the intent wasn't always to understand, but we had the conversation. I shared with them how BYU-Idaho's cost innovations have allowed the university to triple in size without increasing its inflation-adjusted cost for more than 20 years. I'll share with you here the enrollment data of the church educational system. This top line is BYU. That little dip is when the church changed its missionary age. But pretty much we've been flat with a slight increase uh, coming out of the, into the pandemic. This line here is the enrollment at BYU-Idaho. When it was created in 2000, the cost of running that university to the church have not changed other than ordinary inflation in 20 years. There is not an analog in higher ed that have done that anywhere. But the reason that happens isn't because we're innovative or we're smart or we're frugal. The innovations that happen at BYU-Idaho happen because of its religious identity. In the same speech, he said, you guys, okay, this is great, I'm impressed, but this has nothing to do with your religious identity. You guys just have talented people and good governance. And our response in that meeting was, yes, we have talented people. Kim Clark left the Harvard Business School to be the president of BYU-Idaho, but he left because of his religious sense of purpose. Matt Eyring left the role as a vice president and chief innovation officer at a Silicon Slopes firm to be the vice president of BYU Pathway. But he didn't leave because we motivated him with salary and prestige. We did tell him, we will match your Silicon Slopes salary, all but the seventh digit. <laughs> I went on in that editorial meeting to talk about BYU Pathway worldwide and how it was open access to students who never thought they would have access to an education, particularly a high quality education of which we are providing now to this year crossing over 70,000 students around the world. In the continent of Africa alone, 18,000 students will be enrolled in BYU Pathway this year. This did not happen because we have innovative people with good governance. This happened because we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we believe God loves all of his children. That is why we are innovating. Clearly this conversation, here's a picture of Pathway students. Clearly this conversation transcended the much narrower framing the editor had originally supposed of religious universities. Sometimes we must work across religious traditions, coming together to tell our way, story in ways that are hard for Zarathustra to ignore. I saw this recently at a convening of university presidents we hosted in Washington, D.C. with the American Council on Education. Here's a picture of Shirley Hoekstra uh, and I on the first part of the slide. Shirley is the president of the Council of Christian Colleges and Universities, a great defender and articulator of truth, religious purpose, and her religious university she represents. Our interviewer there in that panel 
uh, is um, Jeff Salingo, former editor of the Chronicle of Higher Education. Jeff was an easier interview than the editorial team we met with uh, weeks before because he knew what we had done. We had had these conversations before, and he was interested, authentically interested, in religious mission at, in higher education. Following their, their panel, we had a panel with pres, former BYU president Kevin Worthen and Reverend uh, John Jenkins, president of the University of Notre Dame, talking about how religious identity leads to questions that are not being asked in the rest of higher education. I remember Reverend Jenkins talking specifically about research on poverty, where they had access to proprietary data using Catholic charities that would not be available to other universities who Catholic charities would not work with. And, at, and in that same meeting, we talked about research being done at BYU on the Constitution and on the family that are not being asked at other universities. I remember, and I'm going off script here, so President Reese better set a timer on me, but I remember having this conversation with the editorial team at The Atlantic years ago. Paul Edwards and I went and spent a day with the Atlantic uh, leadership team. At the end of the meeting, when we were talking to them, they were fine that we were making business model innovations. They weren't really interested in our editorial mission at the Deseret News. And we started talking about a, a priority they had around poverty. And I remember Paul and I sitting there with one of the senior editors, and I said, look, if you guys aren't looking at the structure of the American family, then you are not serious about looking at poverty. Because the number one predictor of intergenerational poverty is cycles of fatherless homes. And if you aren't looking at what's causing that, then you aren't serious about this phenomenon. That kind of conversation can only be had when we come out of the forest of faith. Our religious stewardship also requires us leaving, um, also requires us leaving the forest with courage to engage even when we do not fit societal norms. This is what Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs referred to as being creative minorities in his remarkable first, thing, first things essay of the same title. Rabbi Sachs described the prophet Jeremiah's charge to the Israelites in Babylonian exile to seek, quote, to seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Rabbi Sachs assures his Christian friends to look to the example of the Jews who have long been religious minorities in exile. His counsel is, was to take courage, knowing that creative minorities can thrive religiously, even as they strengthen society generally. BYU's Wheatley Institute carries the torch of public scholarship on the role religion plays in strengthening society. In his 2018 address to the G20 Interfaith Forum, Elder Detog Christofferson, call this protecting the good that religion does. In other words, you ignore religious mission at your peril. If you want BYU pathway to happen, you can't ignore the wellspring of what led to it. 
For example, multiple large sample studies demonstrate how religious engagement correlates with overall societal well-being. In their study of religious restrictions in 198 countries, Brian Grimm and Roger Fink show the positive relationship between religious freedom and social stability, economic progress, and freedom of the press. Of course, the social science literature shows the robust benefits repeatedly for the practice of religion on overall human flourishing, ranging from marital stability, increased happiness, decreased risk of suicide and other deaths of despair, reduced recidivism after incarceration, and increased educational attainment. We could go on and on with this list. I'll highlight just one more. Jason Carroll of the Wheatley Institute, who's here tonight, and his colleagues have shown how measures of human flourishing are elevated not only with increased personal religious practice, but also through shared family religious practice. It turns out that home-centered worship intensifies and extends the social benefits of religious devotion. Elder Ronald A. Rasman of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints reminds us of the public virtue religion brings. President Oaks has affirmed most religions exhort their believers to give to the poor. Most also teach their believers that they are accountable to God for this duty. In other words, yes, religious freedom is a constitutional right, but it is also a compelling public good. It deserves protection on both counts. Now in conclusion, I join with so many others in expressing my gratitude for our first freedom. For the founding era framers, as well as modern day defenders who have fought to preserve our religious rights of conscience. But if we are to respond to our secular critics, and more importantly, fulfill our accountability to God, we must go beyond our formally protected rights. We must remember to honor the stewardship of our first freedom. In response to the modern Zarathustras, we must declare, no, God is not dead. But we cannot assert that claim if we hide nervously in the forest of faith and merely mumble the reason for the hope that is in us. Our defense of religious freedom is always compelling when it preserves rights of conscience, but is most inspiring when it moves us to articulate and act on our call to serve others, lift those who struggle, and shine a light to the world. Thank you for your time and thoughts today and this evening.